Yeah, excited to, to be a part of this, this series. And I want to tell you, because um, for those of you guys who are, are regulars here, used to having Kevin Pike, you know, be the teacher. And I just want you to, because he's not here, he's at the Irvine campus today. If he asks you, um, you know, like, what, what, did he, what did that other guy talk about? When he, if he ever, the only thing I want you to say is this word, or these two words, I belong. Okay, that's all I want you to say, okay? So like if he, the whole, everything we're gonna talk about, I'm only gonna make one point. I'm gonna make it a bunch of different ways. Some of those ways may be confusing, but at the very end of the day when he goes, what are you talking about? Oh, he just said, you know, that, that I belong. That's all, that's all. You want me to move this way? Kathy's giving, oh, I was in the dark. It's so difficult here with like a real professional stage. I'm getting this, you're in the shadow. How, where can I go? This, this is where you need me to be. I can't go any, I, how much room do I have? I got, I mean, am I still good? This is fine? This is okay? Oh, I'm getting, okay, this is the boundary right here. Okay, you, ma'am, you're the boundary, okay? All right, and then how far can I go over here? This is it right here? Wow, this is not even the set, this, whatever. Okay, that's where I need to be? It is so hard to be, I am so sorry. I am just so unprofessional. Thank you, thank you for the encouragement. All right, so if Kevin asks you, hey, what did that guy talk about? All you're gonna say is, I belong. That's it. Okay, so if I blow it, if this whole thing is a nightmare, as I already have kind of started off on the wrong foot, thank you, Kevin. But if, if I blow it, all you have to say is that answer, and I'll, I'll, be, I'll be happy. Kevin will be happy. We have a, that's it. So, okay, here we go. Let me read this, and then we'll, um, we'll get into it. So it says this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says this. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. If you're just joining us, this has been a really fun series. If you haven't been here for the past couple weeks, it's been a really cool series. And it's basically about, the whole series is called ID, as is to say identity. And we took a survey in our chapel a couple weeks ago about, you know, kind of what are some things you're concerned about? And a huge percentage of our audience, and I'm sure if we were to do the same thing here, a huge percentage of our audience said, I'm really concerned about my identity. I don't really know. I don't have a good handle on who I actually am. Or what parts of me that I express as my identity actually matter? What if they really aren't part of my identity? And I've been looking at this whole idea of the, the sort of identity piece through a letter, through the lens of a letter by a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, to these churches in this place called Asia Minor, which is, you know, kind of, it's modern-day Turkey, but it's around the city called Ephesus. And so his letter is called Ephesians. Just, that's not, it's not a real clever title. It's just, if you live around here, Ephesians, this is your letter. And in the first week, we said this. Paul begins his letter, and he starts the, the, whole, the whole letter with the words, this is written to God's holy people, of Ephesus, these people right here. And in the older translations, the King James Version of the Bible, you have a rendering of that word, which is the word saints. In other words, that Paul intended for his audience to understand themselves not as sinners, but as saints. In fact, the word Paul rarely uses the word sinner at all. And it's, it's, well, I shouldn't say that. Paul only uses the word sinner to describe people who are not already believers. In other words, the identity, which is crazy, the identity for people who are in Christ is not sinner, but saint. Some of you are here for that. Um, then last week we talked about Alexander the Great and his dream of making the whole world Greek. I mean, basically to find the perfect Greek ideal. And in the center of everything that's Greek, in the center of what's known as Hellenism, a sort of scholarly way to say making the world Greek, at the center of that, the pic- picture-perfect ideal of everything that's Greek is a picture-perfect human being. And we said one of the outcomes of that is that people in the ancient world, what they would actually do is they would look at kids who were born with some sort of physical malady, 
And they would say, you have no potential, no potential of ever reaching the sort of Hellenistic ideal of a perfect human being. And one of the outcomes was that they would abandon babies outside the city walls. And that these were be, they would be sort of, it was permissible and even sort of um, valued that they would say, well, this person never has any chance of living up to this perfect standard, so we let him go. And Paul uses the language of adoption, if you were here last week, and he talked about this, he, it's very specific language, because in a Roman law, A father could disown any of his own children, but once he declared an adopted son or daughter his own, that son or daughter was protected forever by Roman law. He could never disown an adopted kid. And Paul uses the term adoption to describe the believers, those who had come to be with Jesus, to be in Christ, to be in the community of believers. For a lot of us, if last week we had had kind of this sort of homecoming for a lot of folks, I don't think they'd ever really realize that. That God had adopted them permanently. One guy came to me after the service last week and he goes, he goes, I'm not, and I know I think you guys did like sort of a call to commitment service, but I, at the chapel, I didn't do that. And a guy came up to me afterwards, he goes, I, um, I think I'm saved. <laughs> I was like, what? He goes, yeah, I, I don't know what that means, but I, I think the adopted thing with the, the dad and the, the fathers and the son and the whole, I think that's me. I was like, great, can I pray with you? I mean, I think there was this really kind of this homecoming kind of experience for a guy who heard the term, I'm adopted, and that it was permanent for him. And so actually this past week, Tim and I, we, I actually challenged our, our audience last week. I said, hey, if you want to kind of resist Alexander's dream of a Hellenistic perfect ideal, then why don't you just, here's, I gave a couple of suggestions, and one of them I said was, why don't you commit at least one intentional fashion faux pas? And, you know, people are like, I, and I even challenged, I'm like, you know, everybody in here has some level of fashion sense, and some of you are like, I don't care. You do care, because you wouldn't, I mean, no one would wear, a, a, and we took, we actually, me and Tim actually went out and did this, would wear like a really loud Hawaiian shirt tucked into like a pair of trunks and wear dark socks with sandals, and kind of, they, all those things combined with a fanny pack, and you know, like, those are all, you all kind of go, eh, I don't think I'd do that. I mean, I'm not really, care-. but, so me and Tim actually did it. We actually, we were like, we got to just see what happens. We told people to do it. We're going to do it. So this week, we went to a strip mall, went to Starbucks, dressed like that. And it was unbelievable. People's reaction. Some, some people knew right away. They were like, some people were like, like, what is this about? What are you guys doing? And we're like, having to explain it was even more difficult, of course, you know. But one, we walked into Chipotle. This is in Irvine. We walked into Chipotle, and the guy thought we were from out of town. He comped, <laughs> comped our meal. It was unbelievable. <laughs> he was like, oh, you guys, first time here, right? Cool. Um, well, uh, you know, it's on me. Come, just, you know, whatever. So I told him. I tell people the story. That's how cool this guy was. So if you really are desperate for a free meal, feel free to dress up that way. But we had people looking at us. One group, um, we, they looked at us. And finally, Tim, with his, like, sort of unbelievable sort of magnetic charm, walks up to this group of people at Starbucks. And he's like, hey, you guys, um, what's going on? And they're like, what are, you, what are you doing? And so Tim's like, well, we're kind of committing fashion faux pas. And he looks at me like, can you explain to these people why? I was like... Okay, so um, in the 4th century B.C., there's this Alexander the Great. I'm, I, I'm, how, how am I going to try and explain Hellenism? But anyway, it was very fun. We were trying to figure out how we could kind of subvert some of the idea of, that, our, that our sort of society puts on us in terms of trying to live up to this Hellenistic ideal by doing a small act of rebellion. And so we did, and it was kind of hilarious. And if you are frequently feeling the need to commit fashion faux pas to do those kinds of things... Um, I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where you might be able to do that. If you're, if you're in a situation where you feel like, I don't belong anywhere else today, maybe you'll figure out a different picture of what that looks like. Would you pray with me? And then we'll, we'll kind of get further into this passage. Jesus, um, we thank you that you have gathered us here, that we might learn a little bit, that we might be challenged, that we might laugh, hopefully be able, God, to understand how great and powerful and mighty your love is for us. Jesus, as we understand as best as we're able, um, 
the picture of what you paint for us in this book of Ephesians, God. Would you um, bind us together? And God, would you give us a sense that we do actually belong because of your work in us? Not because of what we do, not because of what we can prove, not because of how much we live up to in the Hellenistic ideal of human perfection, but because, God, you love us and you move towards us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. So if you have your Bible, you want to you know, stay with us in, in Ephesians chapter 1. And I should say this. This is the third week of the series. We're, on the only, we're only going to get to the 14th verse of, this, of, this, of the first chapter. Some of you are going, wow, this is going to take until Christmas. Again, another series going all the way forever. And, you know, the answer is, well, yes, sort of. But it's just so packed. And we're only going to spend time on two more verses today to hopefully drive home this point about belonging. But it says this, <clears throat> verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. I'll stop right there. Um, It it starts out with the phrase, you also. Clearly, this is an indication by Paul, the writer, to a group of people saying, there are other people who have been included, who have been marked as the ones who, who are on the inside. But he starts this by saying, you also, as if you people who were previously excluded, who were not invited, who were out of the party, you're now going to be included. Now, throughout the Bible... God identifies a group of people who are always on the inside. Those are his own people, the Jews. And now Paul writes to these people and he says, you also. Meaning there's going to be another group of you who thought yourselves to be excluded are now going to belong. You're going to be moving towards this place. And there's going to be a new kind of belonging and a new kind of inclusion. And then Paul affirms something in all these people that they have in common. He says, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now, this is, let me just give you a breakdown of a couple of these words. This is, the words gospel and salvation, you hear them a lot, and they have, they have sort of lost some of their power in sort of our res, a regular sort of understanding what those things mean. First of all, the word gospel, is a, it's a, it's really it just means good news. And it's a combination of the word you, the E-U, meaning good, and agelos or agelion, which means message. So gospel is good news or good message. And then he says this, he uses the word salvation. Now, for a lot of us, if you grew up in the church in particular, I did, um, from the time I was about, you know, seventh grade or so, and if you grew up particularly in America, there is an, there's an understanding about what the gospel, what, what, the, what salvation means that I think a lot, maybe might not have been the way the first century church might have understood it, and it's this. Many of us got a picture about salvation that said, Salvation is sort of like receiving a gift certificate or um, a lifetime membership to Disneyland that's, that's redeemable in 40 years. Like, hey, congratulations, you've got your lifetime pass. You can't redeem it until you're, you know, for a long time. But once you get, you can, you can go in. It's, it's like an all-access pass. You get a front, front of the line. You can buy whatever food you want. You just wave that thing and they give it to you. It's amazing. But for right now, it's really not valuable. You have to wait till about, you might have some level of excitement in the meantime, like I can't wait for 40 years when I can take my grandkids, if you know, my, you know, I can't wait, but there's not really much else you can do. You might talk about it, but there's not much else that happens there. For so much of the time, salvation is only talked about in those terms about someday way off in the distance, the real benefit of your life with Christ is when you're dead. (laughs) But there isn't an indication, at least in the first century, that people were expecting that only. Now that's true. But there is something about their salvation, their present day rescue, which they lived out in the present moment. It wasn't just, that's wonderful, someday when I die, everything will be great. It's the sense that says, right now I'm being rescued. I'm in the process of, and I have been rescued, and it's still happening in my life. It's what the Bible scholars tend to call, in sort of the common language, the already and not yet of the gospel. That stuff is already beginning to happen. 
It's moving me from one place to another, and it's not fully fulfilled. It's the both and, the already of what's happening now and the someday what will happen. That's a better picture of salvation. It's what they tended to think. That's what Paul's talking about. And then he says this, still in verse 13. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to break this down a little bit. In the past year, the Toy Story franchise sort of ended its run with Toy Story 3, great movie. The whole series, the whole, really the whole franchise is awesome. Has, has anybody, everybody seen this movie? Just show of hands. Have you seen any of the movies at all? Okay, good. So most of us, like a high percentage of us, have at least seen these movies. And I know it's not a real controversial movie. I figured probably everybody would have seen it. But it's based around a simple idea. That simple idea is that belonging to someone is the natural inclination of every single person. And secondly, that somehow the belonging to other people is the fundamental source of our own identity and our purpose. That everything else stems out of this picture of belonging. Now I'm going to set up a scene for you and then we'll watch it. But this is in the first movie. Buzz and Woody have been, they're in, they're in the evil neighbor, Sid's house. You guys know Sid, right? And he's, you know, this is the guy who decapitates his toys and blows them up and all that kind of stuff. He's like the scary, actually, we have, I don't think my kids, I have, my oldest is seven. I don't think I've actually even shown them this scene. I, I, mean, I can't remember if I have because it's like, oh my gosh, there's going to be, you know, what's going to happen to the toys after they're all alive and cute? Is Sid going to cut their head off or whatever? So, but, um. Buddy, or, I mean, sorry, Buzz is in this full-on existential crisis. He's now realized, he's gone through this, this period where he's like, uh, oh my gosh, I'm not an actually a space ranger. You know, I'm, I'm a toy. And he's now beginning to think to himself, what actually matters to me? And, and there's this sort of callback moment that you'll see in this scene that happens in the first act of the movie in which um, Buzz is showing all the other toys how he's been marked on the bottom of his, of his boot or whatever, his little space boot, with the word Andy. And the other toys are like, oh, with permanent ink, you know, all this kind of stuff. Now, that's, he's going to call back to that scene in this scene right here, which you're going to see. So um, check this out, and then we'll, we'll talk about it right now. Hey, get over here and see if you can get this toolbox off me. Come on, Buzz, I... Buzz, I can't do this without you. I need your help. I can't help. I can't help anyone. Well, sure you can, Buzz. You can get me out of here, and then I'll get that rocket off you, and we'll make a break for Andy's house. Andy's house? Sid's house? What's the difference? Oh, Buzz, you've had a big fall. You, You must not be thinking clearly. No, Woody. For the first time, I am thinking clearly. You were right all along. I'm not a space ranger. I'm just a toy, a stupid, little, insignificant toy. Whoa, hey, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a a space ranger. Yeah, right. No, it is. Look, over in that house is a kid who thinks you are the greatest, and it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. But why would Andy want me? Why would Andy want you? Look at you! You're a Buzz Lightyear. Any other toy would give up his moving parts just to be you. You've got wings. You glow in the dark. You talk. Your helmet does that, that, that whoosh thing. You are a cool toy. As a matter of fact, you're too cool. I mean, I mean, what chance does a toy like me have against a Buzz Lightyear action figure? All I can do is... There's a snake in my boots! Why would Andy ever want to play with me when he's got you? 
I'm the one that should be strapped to that rocket. Listen, Buzz, forget about me. You should get out of here while you can. Buzz, what are you doing? I thought you... Come on, Sheriff. There's a kid over in that house who needs us. Now let's get you out of this thing. Yes, sir! Some of you are like, can we just please keep that going? You know, those, I mean, do they, do they really get out of there? Um, <laughs> Woody nearly talks himself out of his own sort of speech there. He almost talks himself into his own depression there. And you can see the critical moment. There's two critical moments in that speech. First one is when he says, you are his toy. And then he almost talks himself out of why, he's, why it matters because he sort of begins to sort of point out all the things that Buzz Lightyear can do and all these kinds of get, And then you get Woody going, well, I can't do any of those things. But he's still his toy. And there is this picture. You can see where this is going. Buzz rereads the word Andy, and he realizes I belong to someone else. And now the fundamental picture of who he is has totally shifted. That one point that he sees, it, it, well, I almost showed you this scene too, it was just too long. There's, at one point, Buzz Lightyear sees, he, well, he's in Sid's house, and he happens to see an advertisement for the Buzz Lightyear toys, and he sees rows and rows and rows of toys that are the same as him, and he goes, gosh, what makes me unique? And he goes, see, this is the beginning of his sort of depression. And, and Woody has to say, you're his toy. And this is the beginning of the third act of the movie, right there at that moment. And the reason for any sort of transcendent success of any kind of movie when the story really begins to connect is that somehow or another that movie or that story connects with the deeply human part of us. And Toy Story is about our need to belong. It's in our DNA. It is part of who we are. We are created to belong to someone the, the reason, it's the reason why we do so many regrettable things in high school, <laughs> because we're trying to fit in, because we have such a compelling need to belong that it overwhelms our better judgment in so many cases. It's the reason why we feel so much pain when we're excluded. I still have memories of being excluded in fourth grade. I mean, I mean it's a little sad that I still think about it. I mean, it's like sad on top of sad. I mean, it's only a spiral of sadness if you think about it. But it's sad because I remember being in fourth grade. And I remember the group of guys I rode my bike with every day to school. And I remember when, because I was, I was always a pretty weird kid. And I remember getting a letter while I was working on the computer. You know, this is like, we had computers. You know, it was like this new thing where you could like, you know, actually punch in buttons and it would show up on the screen. It was awesome. Perhaps you've heard of these things. But I was, I was on the computer, which is still sort of this new skill. And there was only like four or five computers in, this, in the whole school. And I remember, you know, a guy drops a note over my shoulder, right under the keyboard, and I unfolded it. It just said, you're out of the group, the guys. Dude, devastating. I mean, I nearly broke down in total, like, <laughs> I mean, on the, I mean, <laughs> on the computer screen. I was like, how am I going to try and with dignity, like, kind of shuffle back to my desk and try to pick myself up? And I remember we all, wrote, we all lived next to each other. So riding my bike to school, we, I just rode on opposite side of the street with them. It was just this further identification of you don't matter to us. You don't belong to us. 
fourth grade, still remember it. It still is like, oh my gosh, what if my kids have the same scenario? We have that sense and we know how much it hurts to be deemed irrelevant, to not matter. That scene in that movie is about the deep fear of becoming irrelevant and not mattering. And it's also about embracing the nature of belonging. And Paul says, to the people who belong to Jesus, you are marked as God's very own belonging, unique and special, permanently marked, or to use the vernacular of this movie, permanently markered. Verse 13 again says this. I'm sorry. Here we go. Verse 13 says this. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, so you have this picture of how, this, how the believers are marked, and it's with something, sorry. It's with something called a seal. And a seal in the ancient world. <laughs> Serious moment. Um, okay. A seal in the ancient world marked ownership. It marked authenticity. It marked protection. It said that the thing that was marked with a seal was something that belonged to another person. So, for instance, if Caesar puts a seal on something, it means to to harass or provoke or violate that seal is to, is to bring about the wrath of the Roman Empire upon yourself. This is why it's kind of significant that it says when you know, Jesus is, at Jesus' tomb it was sealed. That it wasn't just like they just shut off the air. It meant that it meant that there was, this is going to be marked as belonging to the Roman Empire. So to mess with it is to mess with Rome. So it's the same kind of idea here. Now, the way that people were marked in the Bible, the sort of seal that marked God's people up until sort of this point, was circumcision. Like, we belong to God, we have a marker. (laughs) Probably wish they had a different kind of marker, but that's what they got, okay? And then it says this. It says there's a new, this this is the way the people who belong to God will be marked now. The seal will be the promised Holy Spirit. Now, most people, this is the most misunderstood member of the Trinity. Most people, regardless of their own relationship with their own father, have an idea of what fathers are. We have a sense about what sons are, but the spirit is kind of a weird deal. We have a vague understanding of what that is, or more, probably more accurately, who that is. Let me just give you really quickly, we're not going to talk a whole lot about the Holy Spirit, but I want to give you a little sense. The Holy Spirit is not the sort of Star Wars version of the Force, an energy field created by all living things. It binds us, it penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together, right? Some of you are like, dude, you are a nerd. No wonder you're, yeah, no. It's, that's all right. It's all right. That was, come on, that was a good impression, though. Come on. Anyway. Um, <laughs> The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not like there's the Father, the Son, and then there's that there's sort of this other thing. It's act, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a person, a who, more accurately, a he. And then I should say this as well. The Holy Spirit is not a creation of God. It's not like the other two members of the Trinity were like, you know, this is hard work. We've got to create something else in here to, like, move around and do stuff where we can't be all the time. You know, like, so let's make a spirity thing. Like, that's not, that the Holy Spirit is present at the time of creation. In the second verse of the Bible, it has the Holy the Spirit of God hovered above, or should, it sometimes they say brooded above the surface of the, of the waters. So there's this sense about this, this Holy Spirit person that's actively involved. And we should say this, just to kind of move it forward. The Holy Spirit is moving in believers, to activate them and to shape them into the people God intended them to become. And we're going to talk more about the Holy Spirit later in this series, but just suffice it to say that the the faith of the people who follow Jesus is not just a numerality in which they try really hard to do things. It's that there is a supernatural element in which the Holy Spirit is occupying their own hearts and beginning to shape them in ways that they could not do by themselves. 
For now, that's all you got to know. Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit in fresh and ancient ways at the same time. And he would say this, that God's, you could basically you could say that God's presence and work in the world has to involve the Holy Spirit in a pretty significant way. So John, this is Jesus is talking to his disciples right before he's about to leave them. And he says, hey, you guys, I'm, I'm going to leave you guys. We've been walking for a couple years together. And he says, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to my father's house. And they say, wait, wait, wait. We want to go where you go. And he goes, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. And they go, well, show us the way. And he says, I'm the way. Don't worry. I'm the way. You don't have to worry about where you're going to find it. You want to go where I'm going. I'm the way. And then he says this. John 14, 16 through 18, he says this. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you, and he will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The word advocate, it's sort of this weird, first of all, you have this word another, as if to say, the way I have been with you, there will be another way of that happening, and I'm going to ask God to send that one to you. That's the advocate, the Holy Spirit. And the word advocate is, in Greek, it's the word paraclete or parakleton, I don't know how you say it exactly. But it's not a really, there's not really a good English translation for that word. The King James Version, the old, the authorized version of the Bible, has the word comforter, which has sort of lost its power in our modern day language. We're like, wow, that's, isn't that sort of a fluffy blankety thing that goes on your bed? It's sort of lost its power. The word comfort actually means with strength, with fortitude, with courage. But it's sort of lost its sort of strength in our own, in our own language today. So we have the word advocate. You might know it as, goodbye, Pikes. It's been great to have you guys here. See you guys later. Tell Kevin I did a great job. Yeah, I know. You got, you got, your loyalties do not lie with this person. Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. Way to be there. Okay. No one noticed you guys slipping out, though. Totally subtle. Cool. Um. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> See you guys. <laughs> what was I talking about? Okay. Uh, <laughs> the, other, the best translation of the word paraclete is... Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I don't know them. Who are they? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's, that, that's Kevin's family. The pastor who, like, is usually here. I'm the, you can tell I'm the backup. I don't know what I'm doing up here. I was standing over there in the dark earlier. Yeah, so, yeah, they're, they're friends of ours. I, you know, they have dinner at my house, and, I, you know, we're, we're good friends. So, it was, you know, don't worry. Like, they're still going to be friends with us because you're like, wow, that was incredibly mean to single them out. And you're also thinking, I have to go to the bathroom, but I'm not going now. I was going to get up, but. <laughs> this is going to be great on the recording, by the way. This is going to be terrible stuff. Okay, I got to keep moving. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Good job. Thank you, Craig. Thank you. Anybody else? <laughs> All right, let's get back to this. The term paraclete is better translated as the words, one who is called in. It's like, oh my gosh, we have a leak. Let's call in the plumber, paraclete. Okay? Some of you are like, did he say parakeet? Paraclete. Okay. Oh my gosh, we have a hostage situation. We need a SWAT leader. We got to call someone in. We need an expert, a manager. We need a designated hitter. We need Lamar Odom to play basketball really well. Whatever it is, there is something that is called. This is what the paraclete is, one who is called in. And this is what Jesus is referring to. It's someone who is on your team, who is with you, who is moving you towards victory. When I was in college, I went to a big public school, and so... We had a lot of different, all colleges do. We had intramural sports, and I was in a fraternity too. And the, you know, you, we had to, the fraternity had to play at the highest level of the intramural, you know, system. So there's, and at my college, there was five different divisions just of basketball. There was, five, there was a 5'10 division, 
there was a, a C league, a B league, an A league, and a double A league. And the, the fraternities had to play at the highest level. And my fraternity, I was not on this team, so I can talk about them as if they were awesome because I wasn't part of the team. But they were awesome. They beat everybody. But in the double-A division, you also had to play like the football players who weren't in season who were like these unbelievable athletes who were just huge and amazing. And so we, I, we had just lost my fraternity, just lost the final of the intramural sort of deal. And then, we, then you go into the next round, which is sort of the, the playing of um, you, play, you play just other fraternities for the, for the IFC, the Interfraternity Council Trophy. And one of the guys on our team was this, he was a football player, but he was, he was like a fourth string quarterback who never saw any action in the game, who he's like, he looked about like me, he was like taller than me and a little bit like buffer, but you wouldn't like look at him and go, that is a human specimen of awesomeness. He was just like, there's a guy. He frequently was around campus wearing sort of old running shoes without socks. And he was this sort of quarterback, you know, who's kind of this invisible guy. And he was, on, he was in my fraternity. And so um, when it started the, we started the interfraternity sort of games, he walks onto the court. And it is like, there's a lot of tall guys who play basketball on the court. And what nobody would then know is that he, he never really made it as a quarterback. But he played nine seasons in the NFL as a wide receiver. He was like the best athlete ever. They just had him in the wrong position. And so he, he ended up his first play of the game. We're like, hey, that's Drew. He walked, <laughs> this guy's name is Drew Bennett. Some of you might have heard of him. But he walks onto the floor and the, his first, he, he gets the ball, goes by a guy, and just throws a ball off the glass, which is incredibly, throws a ball off the glass, and then hammers a dunk on a guy who's as tall as him, but is now underneath his armpits, like, ah, like this. And then he kind of jumped down and just kind of jogged off. And I would say the next four or five plays in the game were either dunks by him or alley-oops. Alley-oop is, like, for those of you who aren't familiar with basketball, it's like someone else throwing a ball and then midair catching it and dunking it, again, with equal authority. I mean, it was like... The whole game was now at a different level. And no matter who we were facing, no matter how good they were, it was like, we got Drew. <laughs> sorry for you guys. You know, you don't know this, but he's going to play nine NFL seasons. So anyways, sorry for you guys. And he was unbelievable. He was the paraclete, the one who guaranteed our, who was with us, our advocate. Stay with this for a second. This is the seal that's being talked about here. When a king was expre- expressing sort of a sealed protection on someone, a person in particular, He would use this phrase, not a hair on your head will perish or fall or suffer. That seems like a pretty solid seal, right? Look what it says in Luke 21, verse 18 and 19. It says this, but not a hair of your head will perish. This is Jesus' words to his disciples. Stand firm and you will win life. That feels like a very paraclete kind of thing. All right, that's great. Everything's good, right? Only this isn't the whole passage, that feels very Drew Bennett, doesn't it? It feels very paraclete, only there's way more to this verse. Look what it says for the rest of this verse. I'm just going to read this, and you're going to listen to this. But before all this, this is talking again to the disciples. <laughs> they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all, all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll, te- how you'll defend yourselves, for I will give you words of wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, sisters, and relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair on your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Whoa, which, which is it, Jesus? <laughs> kind of like just sort of the Drew Bennett coming off the bench and doing something. Off, but there's this picture here of something much different. The last phrase is the most telling, where it says, it says, stand firm and you will win life. 
as if to say the life that we're hoping to have isn't going to be had under the sealed protection that looks something like a lounge chair on a beach with an iced tea and we're our biggest worry being about sun exposure. It seems like the life, our own hair that will not perish, has something to do with something other than our own worry-free comfort. Is it possible that what Jesus is inviting people into, it's the same thing that Paul's echoing here, is that the life we're being invited into, the life in which we win, can't be had in that sort of way, that there's something other than comfort for us. You were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14 says this, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The phrase deposit, first of all, who is the deposit paid to? You can answer. Not God, it's not the son, Jesus. I'm going to read it again. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Who is that for? Us. Isn't it a little crazy to imagine that God makes a down payment, a deposit guaranteeing that's being paid to us? The word deposit here is still used in sort of contemporary Greek language. It's the same word that they used to describe being, like, being engaged. The same exact word. So it's like sort of, you know, betrothal. Like, you know, I, it's this picture of what I intend to do with this ring, the down payment, the deposit, is a symbol of this sort of picture of belonging. Some of you thought I was going to say something to that guy, didn't you? Yeah. When people get engaged, they do all kinds of things. There's this seriousness of the intention that's committed by the giving of a ring. And a newly engaged woman cannot keep this kind of thing secret. No matter what time of night or day this happens, every single person will be called, contacted, faxed, emailed, smoke signaled, alerted. A co- I mean, they will, everybody will know. T-shirts will be made. Email blasts will go out. I mean, it will be, you know, everybody will know. Anybody, anybody engaged in here, by the way? Just out of curiosity. Did you, did you tell everybody the moment you were engaged? Like, I mean, how many people do you think in a matter of five minutes knew? Facebook, the whole, everybody in the, 600 million people knew about it in one, in one second, right? Okay, good. Now, everyone will ask, just as if, you're, if you're thinking about being engaged, everyone will ask you, and they probably have, what's your name? Renee. Renee. So my guess is that everybody has asked you, how did he propose? Right? Everybody asked that story, right? Just as a tip, I, I, I did the lamest proposal ever. I've been married for 12 years, and I have to relive this story. Every time I meet someone who's engaged, it's like, oh, really, how did you do it? I don't even have time to go into it, right? I just want to tell you that you should probably err on romantic, and even if it feels cheesy, guys, even if it feels, err on that side of things rather than what you think is hilarious. <laughs> Anyways, okay. When a woman is engaged, she uses her hands all the time, showing you, doing this kind of thing. I wonder what my nails look like. Have you seen my nails? Have you... I was wondering where to go. I mean, there's just all of this kind of stuff happening, right? She practices her signature, middle name, hyphen, not hyphen, old name, maiden name, new name, tries to make it look natural because they're going to be signing official documents now with a new name. How, and they go over and over and over again. And if you see a woman with a new shiny ring on, her, on this finger, make her day. Ask her about it. Tell me, are you engaged? 
Wow, tell me about that story. And you can see the sort of excitement about that because what it symbolizes is someone is promised to be with me. And it's also the expression of belonging to someone in a particularly special manner. This is what the seal, the deposit, is about. In the ancient world, when kings would own, they, the way that it was described is the kings owned everything under their boundaries. So in a kingdom, anything that was in that, in that sort of boundary of the kingdom belonged to the king. And there were some things, though, while well, he owned everything that were decided to be his own special treasure, things that he kept in his own house, maybe even his own room. I have three kids. My oldest is seven years old. He has, you know, before his, brothers, his brother and sister were born, he had every toy that was in the house. I mean, we didn't, you know, they're all his. And we had all of these baskets of toys, and people bought us toys we, have no, we, don't, we, don't, we did not need and still do not need. <clears throat> but he singled out one little stuffed animal dog when he was like two years old. To this day, that dog is still in his bed. Like he still kind of tucks him under his arm, and he'll, you know, he'll wake up, you know, well, he might be thinking about baseball, everything else, but he wakes up, and there's the little dog, which he, we don't know how he got this name. He named the dog Tito, and there's Tito <laughs> under his arm every day. His special, all of the toys belonged to him, but that was his special treasure. Verse 14 refers to the church. As those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory, there is this specialness. To those of us who were once excluded, we are now included. The you also of the whole world is included. You're marked permanently, adopted, and you belong. And the implications for this we're going to cover later in the series. For now, what I want you to do is this. I want you to stretch your imagination a little bit. This will be harder for some of you than for others. I want you to imagine that you are a woman about to be engaged. You know this is happening. All the signs are there. You happen to spot the groom's brother in the bushes with a video camera. You know what's happening. And I want all of you to imagine yourself in this scenario. Okay, even guys. Okay, here's the deal. Now, I want you to imagine this. Now, this is what happens in a truly clever proposal scenario. When a guy goes way over the top, it's so amazing and clever and awesome. The woman's overwhelmed with excitement, and, and the man is being tortured because she hasn't yet said the one thing he needs to hear, which is, yes. So she's, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Already calling phone, Facebook, everybody's getting, was that a yes? I mean, it doesn't, the guy is, this is the moment, this is the ultimate torturous moment. Just if you're, guys, ladies, if you're in a serious relationship, please say yes before you do anything else. Because the guy is in total, he's totally freaking out. Okay. Now. Today, what I want you to, uh, this whole thing was just about being belonging. All I want you to do, this is your only action step, to say in your own heart, in the way, however you are going to express it to God, yes. There is this whole elaborate sort of offering to be with me, this marking by God to belong to him. And it's not about having all the answers. It's not about solving all the potential issues that will come later on. It's about, I'll wear the ring. Yes. You live now with excitement and anticipation of what's to come. Yes would be a willingness to yield of your own life to another. Okay. Yes. It is to say, bearing a mark, a ring, that says, my heart is already spoken for. It belongs to someone else. To say yes is to say, my heart belongs. It has been marked, permanently marked, markered to someone else. 
today is about saying yes. It's about identity being born out of belonging. For the first time, maybe, every day, that we determine not to win God's heart, but to live as if we're his special treasure, his special belonging, his beloved. Would you pray with me? The band's going to come up in a second, but would you pray with me as we close out our time? Jesus, we come before you. And while we don't have all the answers, we don't understand everything, it's the humble, sincere cry of our hearts that we just say the word, yes. God, today we walk out of here knowing that it's not because we are able to produce anything that approaches anything that looks like the, the sort of Hellenistic ideal of what you would what everybody sort of puts pressure on us to become, but God, you love us because we're yours and you mark us permanently to belong to you. God, as we sing these last few songs, would you hear our heart moving towards you saying, yes, I choose to belong. My heart is spoken for and it belongs to you. Jesus, we give you these words, our collective prayer and song that we sing. And it is in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.